0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, From the ongoing repression of leaders and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing, it is a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. My guest today is Representative Rick Larson of the Washington 2nd District, Congressman Larson is one of the founders and co chairs of the House's bipartisan U.S. China Working Group, which he helped start back in 2005, I believe. He's been very active in China policy over the years and has consistently been one of the real voices of reason and moderation in Congress when it comes to U.S. policy toward China. I first met Congressman Larson in Beijing about, well, eight years ago or so, uh, when he was part of a congressional delegation brought to Beijing by the National Committee. Earlier this summer, Congressman Larson published what I thought was an excellent white paper on U.S.-China relations titled A Four-Point Strategy to Enhance U.S. Competitiveness and Leadership. It was an update of a white paper addressing many of the same issues that he published in 2019 and which I also found to be eminently reasonable, full of ideas that I would personally love to have seen discussed more widely and not just in Congress, but in the White House as well and in the broader American conversation on China. Congressman Larson, thank you so much for making the time and welcome to Seneca. Thanks
1: uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Um, it's uh, good to be on and glad to recognize the, the work in the white paper. You call it, uh, I think, a, a voice of reason and moderation. Not a lot of that uh, regarding U.S.-China relations in Congress these days. No, indeed. But uh, despite the fact that I think there's a reality to the difficulty of the relationship, uh, there's there's still a reasonable approach to take. That's right. While also being, you know, very, very firm and strong on U.S. policy towards uh, China, its leadership and its
0: actions. Preaching with the choir, absolutely. <laughs> uh, before we dive into the white paper, can you tell me a little bit about the U.S.-China working group that you started? Uh, its history. What has it been up to, especially just in the, the very trying times for the bilateral relationship uh, since, say, 2017?
1: Yeah, sure. So since uh, we started this in 2005 with uh, Mark Kirk, a representative at the time, Representative Mark Kirk, later Senator Mark Kirk. Um, Charles Bustani then became the chair. He's a representative from Louisiana. And then Darren LaHood from Illinois is now the Republican co-chair. I've, I've been the consistent Democratic co-chair of this group. And over that uh, period of time, uh, I've made the trip to uh, China uh, 11 times. The last trip we took was oh, in March of 2019. With, I think there were six members of Congress on that trip. We tried to take three Democrats, three Republicans each time we go over, uh, but haven't been over since, obviously because of COVID. And we're looking for an opportunity to get back there. I think there is a, oh, I think from reports back to me is that there is a a, a desire on behalf of the National People's Congress leadership that members of Congress do go visit China again. It is problematic. He mentioned 2017. It's problematic these days because sh- the center of gravity in the U.S. Congress, especially in the U.S. House, has shifted to be much more hawk than, say, being engagers. I like, to, I like to say members of Congress are uh, the no longer national security, economic, or human rights hawks. There's punishers, decouplers, and engagers, folks who want to use policy to punish China, folks who just want to decouple from China, and then the few and the proud, I guess, the folks who recognize, despite the challenges, very real challenges, there's the need to engage
0: with Chinese leadership on any number of issues. That's right. This new taxonomy of yours, I think, is, 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 is excellent. Uh, it works well. I think you used the word salvagers rather than engagers. I still, maybe some residual allergy to the E word. <laughs> it might be, but, it um, might be salvagers, but to do that, you have to engage. Yeah, Absolutely. I mentioned that you'd published an earlier iteration of the paper in in 2019, uh, but as you rightly note, you know quite a bit has happened since then, and not just in terms of China's you know even deeper authoritarian turn, but also developments in the United States within American society. What are some of the major changes that you felt you needed to address in this updated white paper, and what are the new priorities and recommendations that are chiefly responses to? the new reality that we face.
1: Yeah. Well, I think a white paper like this has to live in the real world. right? Uh, if you will, think, think about it that way. And in uh, 2019, I was thinking that well, the policy of the previous administration was just going to be that, just pre- previous administration's policies towards the relationship with China. But even then, it was, previous administration was kind of bifurcated. The, the president at the time Calling President Xi a, a good friend and wanted to get along with him and and uh, and people like Putin, while at the same time the, pol- the policies themselves were fairly um, uh, fairly strict, fairly tough, especially on trade, um, so on. So thinking that the uh, the Biden administration would come in and, and maybe adjust a little bit, um, or if not a lot, uh, that didn't really happen. Uh, the Biden administration sort of kept. Full bore on uh, on the trade tariff policy and and a few other things, but still, I would argue they they have changed uh, tackle a, a lot when it comes to engaging for some constructive dialogue. And so, I wanted to kind of update this paper to say, okay, got it. We're going to have a tougher generally U.S. policy towards China, and its, uh, leadership decisions is going to be generally tougher than it has been under say the the, the Clinton Bush Obama years let's accept that as a reality. Given that, one of the things I was preaching before the administration came in in 21 was that no matter what it did, the U.S. Congress was not going to budge any at all on either human rights abuses in China or on technology policy. So, And that was basically Huawei and ZTE. Obviously, it's much deeper than that when you look at Artificial intelligence, uh, you look at the Chips Act, Chips and Science Act that we passed in, in the United States, and what that means for as an underlying foundational um, policy that impacts a lot of other technologies. And so, uh, my view is okay, if that is, if this administration is going to continue to take a tough line, what does, it, what does it need to stay tough on, at least from a political perspective, working with Congress, but also what are those opportunities that? can still uh, still exist. So there's a, that level of engagement that's necessary when you have the two largest economies in the world and the two largest carbon emitters in the world and nuclear weapons held by country, both countries and so on. There
0: has to be a place where they can talk. That's right. So just now you, you've laid out a few things where you take issue maybe perhaps or ordered, maybe cherished hopes that the Biden administration would change tack a bit. Uh, there is other implied criticism of the Biden administration's current policy <laughs> approach. In this white paper, one of the main themes um, in Biden's approach that you seem to take issue with, I hope I'm not reading too much into this, is, is the administration's tendency to sort of divide the world into blocks in a way mm-hmm. that you suggest is reminiscent of the Cold War. I mean, you don't say this explicitly, but the way that the Biden team has tended to talk about these in terms of uh, you know, China and the United States is in, in democracies versus authoritarian regimes. I'm wondering whether you could speak directly to that aspect of Block thinking. Um, what if anything do you see as the danger of that kind of bifurcation?
1: Yeah, I don't. Um, I think that in Congress you hear that a lot more than you might from the Biden team. My, my uh, uh, the language I, I use when I talk about U.S. U.S. roles in the world is you know, allies, partners, and friends. So when you have the president go to G20 uh, here in early September, when we're doing this podcast we go to G20 and then coming back from the G20, you'll be stopping in Vietnam. No one would argue Vietnam is a democracy. Um, they would argue it is an authoritarian country, a communist party led country. Right. And yet it is going to be an important partner for the United States. And I think from Vietnam's perspective, that it wants to be a partner with the United States. It'll never be an ally. Um, it'll be a democratic partner, but, uh, we have a need to build a strong relationship with Vietnam. There's tra- there are trade issues that are important to the Vietnamese uh, leadership uh, with the United States, and there's also, from a Vietnamese government perspective, they want to. I would guess they would never say this, but they want to hedge against their large northern neighbor, China, and that's in U.S. interests as well. So the the idea that there's there's block creating going on between democracy and authoritarianism, is. I don't. I don't think I can, I don't think I should be making that broader case. But when it comes to what I think Chinese government is trying to do in developing its friends and partners, I would. Yeah, I would say it. I would say it'd be a stretch to say partners and friends of China. So the Chinese government doesn't think want friends or partners. They want um, people. They uh, countries. I think they can influence for other for other reasons. But I do think it's important that the U.S avoid Cold War type of blocks, but also it's in our interest to have friends, partners, and allies for a lot of reasons. And one of the points in my paper is that this isn't just about U.S.-China. We don't live... The U.S.-China relationship is not a bilateral relationship. Um, It is influenced by so many other relationships that the U.S. has with other countries. And it is in our U.S. interests to develop relationships with these other countries. And it helps counter China. It can maybe help shape the environment in which Chinese leadership makes makes decisions as well. But for its own sake, these relationships can improve U.S. interests for our own domestic economy when it comes to trade, as well as for global engagement on any number of issues, whether that's at the UN or a natural disaster response or developing other national security relationships. We, We should be doing some of this stuff for our own reasons, regardless of what China's role in the world
0: is. Yeah, and that's the theme I want to get to in a bit. Let's dive, though, first into the meat of your white paper. You put forward four guiding principles behind this four-point strategy, and these are just in your own words, one, recognizing existing areas of conflict and competition, two, expanding the playbook to include both offensive and defensive measures to compete with China, three, identifying areas where cooperation is in both nations' interest; and four, getting our own house in order. So there's a lot to get into here. But first, let me ask you about this. Like the first three of these really don't deviate that far, at least from the way Secretary Blinken has has formulated things, you know, compete with confidence, cooperate where we can, contest when and where we must. He said this in, in a bunch of different yeah. sort of permutations. He also said things like, you know, uh, China, policy toward China will be competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. Uh, but, you know, the three C's, right, uh, are there. Uh, and you know so it, it doesn't you you it's you're pretty much on board with this idea is that right uh, yeah pr- uh, pretty pretty much uh pretty much on board with the idea
1: I, I think that whatever us policy is going to be it has to leave room for the engagement side of okay. uh, the relationship there are there are current differences there are very real differences it isn't it, you know we're not in the clinton bush obama era us china relations a very different world um, these days um, but that said it we need to leave the room for collaboration for engagement so yeah I generally generally I'm okay there and and I think maybe you're gonna get to
0: the fourth thing I got something to say <laughs> yeah which is yeah which is I think um you know a, a, it, it's great that that uh, you know you, you include that that was part of the 2019 as yep. well but I think you hit that even harder this mm-hmm. time. In part because there are so many other things that need to be gotten in order. <laughs> yeah, or right. So, so what's happened now? This, this fourth point is getting
1: our own house in order. Is is it's good words own sake, but my my criticism, if you will, of the Biden administration. This is not, not breaking news. I've been really clear to everybody about this. Is what was the purpose of all this? Like, so we passed the bipartisan infrastructure law in the United States to invest right. long term in the basic foundational infrastructure that keeps our economy moving. Rose bridges, highways, transit, broadband—all these great things. We passed the Chips and Science Act in order to deal with the issue of microchips and how important those are to longer-term growth. We passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which is really the driver of energy transition, the green transition—that's right Um and, uh, in the United States and in the and in the world as well. Okay, we've done all that. Now, my view is like great. Now we've done that. Now we should go out into the world and say the U.S. has, get it, got, has got its economic house in order. We are stronger for it. Domestically, and because of that, we can now confidently go into the rest of the world on uh, on the, on the economic platform and, and on trade issues, and use this use the strength that we're building at home to make us stronger abroad. In, in particular, I mentioned the CPTPP. Yeah, no matter where you go, you, you hear about the criticism towards the U.S. about trade is like. You have this. Uh, U.S. has put together this Indo-Pacific economic framework, but it doesn't allow market access. That's right. That is. Everyone wants everyone. Everyone wants trade agreements, but they don't really want trade agreements. They really want market access, and uh, and that's my criticism of our partners who are complaining about I, I, I IPAF. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all. It's always only about we want access to the U.S. market. It's fine, but the U.S. MCA, the U.S. Mexico Canada agreement, was actually based on the TPP, and we actually, you know. Use the TPP to put, make sure environment was part of trading, make sure labor is part of trading. We also have this That's whole discussion right. about state-owned enterprises um, as part of the TPP debate. It didn't didn't need to be in the um, USMC but the point is, trade agreements are more than market access or about standards and setting standards. Yeah. So I'm just leading up to the big the punchline here is that getting our own house in order was one thing. Now we need to use that to go out and push on these higher standard trade agreements. And we're not doing that. And if we, but if we do that, it is a, it is a actual strategic action that we can take with fresh partners and allies that actually can help shape. I think shape China's leadership's decisions on trade in in the world. And, you know, right now we're, we're giving up that space, I think. And so, my point about number four, again, around the and order, is we've done it, and now what are you going to do with it? And we need to do more right. with it,
0: because it does, have, it does have an impact on the U.S.-China relationship. You take these four pillars, basically, and, and you apply them across a number of, of issue areas. Just now we talked about how it, it may be applicable, especially that fourth pillar, in in terms of, of this one that you call jobs, business, investment, and trade. Uh, but again, there, there are five different issue areas that you look at. Uh, you start with national security. Uh, you go on to development and diplomacy, which I thought was a very interesting section. Um, doesn't you know get a lot of attention? I think than it probably should. Technology naturally, which really touches on all of the other ones, and education. So I want to go through these different issue areas, and and while we perhaps can't get into too too much detail on them, you can maybe highlight a few of the main points that you'd want to you know to to, to uh, accentuate in each uh, where we are getting things wrong and maybe you know, what you suggest we should be doing instead. Now, there are a few points in particular under each that I do want to touch on. You've anticipated one of them, which was rejoining CPTPP. We'll get to that, but let's do these in order. And let's start with Taiwan. And the the one that I really wanted to highlight is your position on U.S. policy toward Taiwan, where you advocate continuing the policy of, of strategic ambiguity.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think it's in our, in our interests, in U.S. interest, to be very open and specific about what we would do in response to Chinese aggression towards Taiwan, whatever that, you know, invasion would be the extreme case. But what we would do with regards to Chinese action in Taiwan, because I think it helps maintaining maintain that ambiguity. I think, um, helps maintain stability. Now, uh, I am, I used to be in the majority in Congress on that issue. I am no longer, um, the sh- there's been a shift in Congress to be much more specific about what we would do, and also be much more aggressive about arming Taiwan. There are there are challenges to that for a lot of reasons. One of the biggest challenges is Taiwan's own military and its own policies and what it wants to do versus what it might be in its best interest to do. Uh, but that's a you know a Department of Defense debate and Armed Services debate um, about how to um, so help Taiwan, but. I do think the strategic ambiguity is I'd uh, be a fundamental part of the policy, as well as continuing to press for to say any changes that need to be diplomacy and dialogue, um, uh, because conflict in that in the Taiwan Strait is
0: is not just bad for the region; it would be bad for the world. Right. The next section, I, I hate giving such short shrift to do something as big as national security, but you know uh, it, it's a twenty-two page document. I invite everyone to read. In fact, I hope that everyone does, um, because you know you can sit down and, and in one deep breath, you can. Uh, but it is chock full of ideas. This next section on development and diplomacy, uh, much of what you wrote focuses on American responses to China's Belt and Road Initiative, now 10 years old. So perhaps you could unpack maybe the approach that you advocate yeah. on that front. What should we be doing to to counter? Should we be you know cheering for its failures or should we be offering something else?
1: Yeah. Um, so, the, the, and that's it. It's a great, uh, great way with the question because I don't think any of my paper cheers for China's failures. That's right. Eating. What it's really pushing is that the U.S. needs to do so. This is like this put, don't approach this with a defensive playbook. What, what can we go? What can we do on offense? Right. It's an analogy that you know. I grew up playing high school football here in the United States, so I don't know if the analogy applies to everybody, but. You know, the playbook has to have offense in it, and then we need to go on offense in the world when it comes to development and diplomacy as well. So just offering, just saying don't do BRI, just say no to all this free money, quote unquote free money that China is offering is not a a, a message that's going to work in the developing world of the Global South uh, uh, these days. It, it clearly isn't working. And so, now yeah, we have tools and we made some changes over the last several years, including the defense, development finance corporation the dfc changes that we and we pass that um we've got the export import bank we've got other tools and, and using them collectively doesn't result in a bri like or sized uh type of effort but it is what the u.s can offer and we ought to be offering um to to some some of these countries so i just i just think that there's a better you know the administration recognizes this i think it can be better on it um but i do think that we do have some tools on the development side that can be used to um, not directly counter but to show that the u.s is playing in the world as well in
0: some of these areas that are uh, important internationally for development right i mean this is exactly what you hear anytime you talk to a development economist or anyone from the global south they say you know what's your counter and why don't you show up when the chinese always do right uh, we need you know America comes to town and we get a lecture. China comes to town and we get a hospital. That sort of thing, right? Uh, you know, we get a hospital with Chinese doctors and
1: Chinese nurses and Chinese, yeah, right, um, and Chinese workers building a hospital. I mean, that, that part of part of what we're trying to, I think, shout up communicate is like, well, we can help you build your hospital. We can, and have your workers do it and so on. But so, some of this isn't only on the United States. Some of these countries have leaders who make choices as well that, can be really great and sometimes they're not and that's not that's on the u.s but um
0: uh but we can do better what what the tools we have sure sure under jobs business investment and trade we've spoken a little bit about your you know call for the u.s to join the cptpp the comprehensive and progressive trans-pacific partnership but make the case that that ship hasn't already sailed i mean that you know if by some chance there really were a wheel in america there would still be a way uh, I, I you know it yeah. we, we talk about this a lot I mean obviously i would I would love to see it you know join that and RSAP as well but uh, there's so there seems to be so little appetite for multilateral trade agreements right now in America
1: uh there is very little appetite there's no doubt about it uh but yeah I so say make the, make the case the ship hasn't yet sailed and uh, <laughs> this this Kaiser one thing you you have to know about members of Congress is that we always believe we can do something
0: <laughs> so, yeah,
1: yeah. Just, despite despite everything else, we always believe. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a member of Congress. That's um, right. And uh, we are naively optimistic um, as a as a uh, as a group of people, um, always thinking we can get something done despite the odds. And and I and I do think the CPTPP is is one of those areas where where um, it, the red carpet hasn't been rolled up but, um, for the United States, and so. Um, in fact, again, there's, there's a better strategic reason if there's one thing that we could do in, in all the things I wrote in the paper, by the way, so most of these are not my ideas. I, I endorse them, but I'm trying to, I try to collect ideas and then the ones I like that, you know, try to package them together to create a, create a thing. So I don't want to, um, be a, the, the whole paper and all the ideas I'll take criticism for, but I am borrowing ideas and. And, but the CPTPP joining that is like the one, probably the one main idea in this paper that literally is: U.S. you want to do better against China. Join the CPTPP. But, right. We get a lot else going with it if we if we uh, join the CPTPP. But it is the one big strategic step the United States can take that communicates throughout all of the Indo-Pacific, all of Asia. That the U.S. is here; it's a Pacific country. We aren't leaving, um, and that in, that in and of itself is a would be a big important message to the Chinese leadership. Um, uh, yeah. That said, we'd also benefit from it as a country um, <clears throat> with developing these trade relationships with the uh, with the other partners um, in the in the agreement. But it is the one idea that would really. Force China to sit up and take Chinese leadership
0: to sit up and take notice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a kind of ironic tragedy that the original TPP, so many of the sort of high quality elements of of that were the result of 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 American participation in the negotiations for it. And then you know, you
1: know I, if if this was a if this was a um, a publishing deal, the United States should be suing for for plagiarism because yeah. we wrote it. Right, we yeah. wrote the damn thing, and no, now now everyone else is using it. So Well, we did walk away from it. Uh, we, we I understand.
0: I, yeah. I, I was didn't support it. I was there I was there when it happened and Yeah. Real pity. So under tech, uh, which is, you know, sort of in my wheelhouse, I I, I watch a lot yep. of this stuff. I, I couldn't agree with you more hundred percent behind some of the points that you make, especially about attracting talent through, you know, encouraging easier H one B visas and the like. I, I was more interested though in what you didn't say. I don't think I'm reading too much into this when So earlier in your white paper, you you this is well ahead of the tech section. You say that you're not happy with things like the aggressive export controls. Uh, um, Well, uh, what you say is, you know, you see this as kind of defensive. It's trip the other guy rather than run faster. Uh, It's the kind of defensive strategy that you warn against us pursuing, you know, to the exclusion of offense. So let me quote yourself. You said if the goal of U.S. strategy is to slow China's growth, it is doomed to failure. Totally agree, and but you don't talk about in the tech section uh, these things like the really strict export controls on advanced integrated circuits on, on advanced chips and the equipment that's needed to design and manufacture them. Uh, yeah, that's not, how,
1: yeah, yeah. That that <clears throat> that issue is was developing as I was writing this. So, You know, a lot of these announcements have just come out relatively recently. October, yeah, yeah, um, and so i think in the next iteration and we'll probably take a look at that uh look at the issue of, of uh, chips more specifically and determine what we can do what we ought to do but i, I do think that the fundamental point i'm still making is that uh is uh, what can we do right i do think you know, looking back in the late, nin- late 90s i think what was that, was that um i forget the exact name but it was and do the rocket technology, um, you know, and the U.S. put put some restrictions on technology going to China, in mm-hmm. hopes that it would prevent this Chinese space program from ever happening.
0: Yeah, those was and, the. Uh, I mean, the, the culmination was in 2011 with uh, the, the Wolf Amendment, yeah, right? yeah, preventing
1: NASA and the space the Chinese space agency from cooperating. Um, well, I mean, how how well did that work to stop the Chinese space program? Right, Right? It's, it didn't. Um, there's the Chinese leadership uh, has the incentive to create and build up its own tech sector, which I fully understand. We don't have to play by their rules and nor should we play by their rules um, as they do that. But uh, we ought to keep in mind how effective or ineffective as well as what the collateral damage is to the U.S. or or partners' own technology economies from our actions. And so being more discerning about export controls is important. And I think the administration is trying to do that. I think they are trying to. do that. I don't think Congress wants them, wants the administration to be more discerning. It's uh, uh, it's the decouplers argument, right? Um, that I think is it's just doomed to fail. I mean, the companies jokingly, I'm not jokingly saying like, but you know, I won't name comp. I won't name names, but you know, large tractor construction companies aren't leaving. China large airplane manufacturers based in the United States aren't leaving China um, they're not decoupling they're not getting out of that market so we need to have something much more realistic when it comes to
0: thinking about export controls right can't imagine which airplane manufacturer you're talking about <laughs> can't imagine I mean you know you you do represent the second district I do yeah and the, and the wonderful women and men who build those airplanes that's right that's right so uh, on to education, um, it, I'm, again, once uh, completely all in with the proposals that you make, but uh, what, what I thought was really interesting here was that you you take the opportunity in this section to really hit this idea that everything that we do shouldn't be all about competing with China. I, I'm reminded of something that uh, Ryan Haas once said on this program, um, you, and you quote from his, or you don't quote from, but you know he, you include his book very prominently in, in your bibliography. I, I love that. Which is, you know, very much in line with what you've argued this whole time. Yeah. Stronger, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, Ryan said, you know, China has become the policy equivalent of duct tape, right? You want to fix American infrastructure? Yeah, talk about China. You want to, you know, uh, <laughs> give NATO a new mission? Talk about China. He's, he's saying, you know, we're going to be using China to sell babies nappies soon. Uh, the old reliable. That's, that's right. True. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, um, I I agree that you know the American education system is something we should be investing in absolutely, irrespective of China. But here we are with you know <laughs> you, Congressman Larson writing about this, writing about investing in education in this section of a white paper on competing with China. Yeah, what do you do? Um, but yeah, so uh, what are the points in 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 education investment that you want to hit? Because uh, again, you know, it's it's not it, unpredictable. It's you're talking about about STEM education about. Uh, but I think one, one of the things that I, I liked about it was that you were clearly talking also about the deleterious effects of the China initiative, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it sounds like generally a move past that, but again, this is an issue where the concerns are real, but let's be discerning about it. That's right. not to say if a person has a, either is, is a Chinese national, um, working in research in the United States or forbid is a Chinese American with, it with, uh, what, um, what people say it would be a Chinese name that they're suddenly a danger, which again, that's basically what was happening as well right. uh, in the mid to mid 2010s that, um, that these people, the, these, the, those folks are themselves inherently a danger, but what can we do to say, well, okay, let's educate our universities. Let's educate our research institutions. What is happening? What's going on? Why is this important? Why is it important to them? And it's more work. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's tougher to do that, but it also, you know, might be much more effective. And in fact, from what we know, the China initiative, it really wasn't all that effective. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. in and of itself, uh, these are cases that are very hard to make because if you don't really work hard at trying to make the cases then the courts will throw them out, which is kind of what, what happened. Yeah. So we could, but combining sort of this Let's educate the institutions, educate research um, institutions, the educational institutions, the faculty, focus on that side. And then obviously academic espionage is real. It's not new. Let's not trick ourselves into thinking that this is something that just, just happened over the last 25 years. Then let's focus on those cases that are best to make and most impactful to make. And so Again, it's not saying don't do some of these things from a law enforcement perspective, but it's it's saying like what what is the better approach to be um, effective, yeah. um, so that our so that good quality research that can help help the global
0: commons be successful isn't stolen. There is a through line through through the entire thing that basically says, look, American strength comes from openness; it comes from you know. Tolerance and diversity, and that you know we're we're threatening the very things that make us uh, who we are. Uh, when we, when we it's almost it's almost like in crisis we're like losing trust in
1: ourselves. That's right. When in fact uh, this is this, this analogy is going to be totally it might be lost in some of your folks, but I'm, you know, we're all we're all we're all Simpsons fans. So there's yeah, a great absolutely. scene in the Simpsons where where there's some crisis is happening and Homer turns to Bart and like grabs him and starts shaking him and bar says what do i do what do i do and and homer says i don't know but in times of crisis you go with what you know and <laughs> i do not but that's just it i mean in times of crisis the u.s should go with what it knows Like, right? and what we know is when we have invested in our people when we invested in our roads bridges highways when we invested in our science and our education when we have done those things the result maybe has been 20 years down the road and it's a really great result but it's always been a great result like we go with what you know and, and like let's not we don't necessarily change what we're doing because of china go with what we know and show the success of what we're doing and everyone else will say ah but you know once again we thought the u.s was gonna um be down and out and it wasn't and and i think we just we just just you know that's a hopeful optimism and i have but i just because china is stronger that has been and and it's uh more of a strategic competitor than it has been, just because it doesn't mean the U.S. has to change everything that we're doing. We have strengths we need to build on and
0: and trust them. Trust those strengths. Go and go with what we know. So I want to be mindful of your time. Uh, Just a couple of final questions for you. One is, what has the response been like to uh, what you've written here within Congress, among your constituents in in Washington 2nd, and I mean the, the broader public I think within the
1: U.S.-China relations community, it's been very positive. I yeah. think there's a desire for to have a, voy- a congressional voice uh, saying the things I'm saying. I think in Congress, um, it's an uphill battle. I, again, the center of gravity has shifted. I have shifted myself. My center of gravity has shifted. So sure. I'm a little tougher than I was 15 years ago when it comes to U.S. China relations. But that's the reality of the of U.S.-China relations. It, it has shifted, and and as a policymaker, you need to shift some with it. But you know, I'm trying to stick to my stick to my guns always stick to my principles about we still need engagement we still need an, a relationship that is you know a, uh, have frank and firm discussions but in congress it's really tough because we have this two-year cycle elections and and china becomes an issue for some members of congress and it's better to be tougher than discerning and so with members it's tough although i have distributed this to the select committee and talked a few of the democratic colleagues about it. i've certainly uh a Republican Darren Wood is he's on the select committee, and that's right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I want to be this is my product, not his product. Uh, I want to be really clear about that. Um, but uh, same same token, it's just tougher in Congress these days. Uh, but you got to play a long game uh, on this, I would say, because I, I know the Chinese leadership is playing a long game uh, on this and on their relationship. We need to have a long term game that isn't again getting back to what I said earlier, Kaiser the US China relationship is not. It sounds like a bilateral relationship. It is not a bilateral relationship. Uh, the U.S.-China relationship is a multilateral one. That the meaning that the U.S. Uh, has a stronger, uh, stronger position if it works with friends, partners, no. and allies to advance U.S.
0: interests relative to the United States and U.S. interests
1: relative to China.
0: That's right. And uh, you mentioned just now the Select Committee, and I wanted to get your take on on that. On 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 representative Gallagher's committee uh who are some of the folks that are simpatico I know Addie Kim for example you know uh, I'm the other people point to maybe Rokana. uh who 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 are who's on the committee that you think you know is reachable for what do we call it, salvagers sure salvagers yeah sorry yeah
1: I think that I think that um the thing to think about uh, I, don't, I don't don't want to name names because if I name some names I'm not going to name other names uh, and I and I work with all these folks, so um, I have to maintain relationships with everybody on everything. But I would note that my my guess that you know w- when their report is done, and it's all sudden done, done, like eighty to eighty five percent of it is going to be fairly like yeah, fairly agreeable. Huh. You know, because there is some consensus on, on some things, and and then there's there'll be that ten to fifteen percent that
0: just is like, well, we're not going to that's not where we're going to agree right and but some of that is you know framing the very thing as an existential threat uh which you know you you certainly do not walk anywhere close to that line no no
1: no i i i always believe existential threat to any country is itself and uh um and uh, we uh, so that's why i say we need to get our own house in order we need to pursue our interests we need to be active about that um uh and uh, so that that's but I would doubt, I, I do not. I don't agree that that China is an
0: essential threat yeah, to the United yeah. States. And and finally, what's your sense of what's come out of recent months? Where we've seen Secretary Blinken, we've seen Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, uh, Congress Secretary Gina Raimondo, and somewhere in there, uh, Special Climate Envoy John Kerry, all make trips to China. Do you do you sense that there's an inflection happening over the summer that that things are going to come out. We'll enter the fall and with a different.
1: I do. I do think it, it, it's sort of a we're all we're in a rebuilding mode. I mean, rebuilding those relationships with the Chinese leadership, given now that President Xi is now into his next term and the new new set of leaders, that it just provide an opportunity for both countries to begin uh, reestablishing those those critical relationships. that that, you know, will they result in something? Why, you know, I say, like, is it better to be in the room having discussions or outside of the room trying to listen to the door? And frankly, when it comes to U.S. and China, two largest economies, two largest carbon emitters, nuclear, you know, old nuclear weapons, right, other interests, having the leaders at least talking to each other and developing ideas to continue the relationship it is critical. So I think we're sort of at the uh, the restart of the of the relationship, um, but it, I, I don't again foresee it going back to to uh, to what it was. Um,
0: but I do think it's important that these these visits are taking place. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Congressman Larson. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with me. Uh, we look forward to more sensible thinking from you on China policy. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. First, a very quick reminder about our upcoming Next China conference, which is going to be held in New York City on November 2nd in a wonderful event space right on the East River in Midtown East. We have just a great lineup of, of speakers uh, who are deservedly well regarded. Uh, our guest from a couple of weeks ago, Yashim Huang from MIT, is going to be keynoting the conference, uh, highly interactive breakout sessions where there's just bound to be topics that you're going to be keen on exploring with our speakers and i'm just really looking forward to this there's going to be a game show kind of like jeopardy uh but i'm going to you know call it something that doesn't violate jeopardy ip (laughs) (laughs) peril i'm thinking anyway get your tickets now just click on events from our our page at the all right let's move on to uh hopefully your staff has briefed you on what the the recommendation section is but cars for larson what's what's your recommendation
1: I'm reading a book right now, uh Path Lit by Lightning, It's David Moranis' biography of the greatest athlete of all time, Jim Thorpe. And yeah. uh, it's a great uh it's it's a great book. Uh even when I grew up and I'm fifty-eight, uh, but you know, I knew who Jim Thorpe was. Jim Thorpe yeah. we we knew he was the greatest athlete of all time. And it is a very it's a fascinating book, both about his athleticism, uh, about the challenges that he had in his life, both family and Alcoholism that impacted him and many other Native Americans uh, in the country. The whole issue of Indian boarding schools is is covered in this in this book as part of the biography, and so a real, real, uh, real challenging book um, for Amer- for Americans to read because you're looking at um, both a, a, a human character who had the, this great reputation, uh, but as well was lived through a system. That did not treat him well and many other people while well, the Native Americans in the United States. So, just a, a really great book, about two thirds of the way through it now. And I recommend Dave
0: Moranis's book, um, Path Lit by Lightning, Biography of Jim Thorpe. This sounds fantastic. Uh, I grew up in upstate New York, and uh, next door to us was a family, Jim Thorpe and Jim Thorpe Jr., and they claimed relation. They were both, you know, they had uh, Native American blood in them. Uh, it was pretty obvious. I mean, they, they were.
1: I don't know, but that's the other thing about Jim Thorpe is he, hes a baseball player. Um, he was the first president of what became the National Football League. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so he, his sports background is important to uh, sports history in the United States. His Olympic gold medals have been formally returned um, posthumously, uh, reawarded to him as well. But it just th- there's there are a lot of aspects of American history in the 1900s that jim thorpe touched and but now as well as i want to make a note too we are we're now dealing with some of that legacy by um trying to address the horrors of the indian boarding school history as well and and there's a big chunk of it book that's all about
0: that as well that was great yeah when we reinstated his gold medals that that was uh excellent uh yeah yeah all right. Uh, my recommendation uh, is, I, I just got back from another trip where I dropped my daughter off uh, up in Madison, Wisconsin, and my wife and I, took on Labor Day, we, we drove down to the Driftless area. This is at the recommendation of actually a friend of mine, Paul here, uh, who you might know. He, he was uh, uh, the Office of National Intelligence. He was the China director uh, for many years during the Obama administration. He suggested we go down to the Driftless area, which is southwestern Wisconsin, northwestern Illinois and southeastern Minnesota and uh, we drove around there uh, you know Taliesin is there or Frank Lloyd Wright's home uh, there's a lot of actually Frank Lloyd architecture there but just the physical location this is where uh, the area of the northern Midwest where that wasn't covered in ice sheets so it, it, it remains it's still very very hilly and absolutely gorgeous natural canyons and kind of limestone formations and uh, beautiful, just beautiful country. Some of the most beautiful country in America I have ever seen. Highly recommend it. Just driving through there. Uh, highlights are, I think there's a cave there. It's pretty impressive. It's called Cave of the Mounds. And then um, another place we went to is Governor Dodge State Park with lots of lots of good hiking. It was real hot, but it's it's gorgeous. So uh, that is my recommendation for the week. If you're out in that part of the world, check, check out the Driftless area. All right. Thank you once again. Uh, it was such a pleasure to have you on, and uh, really great to see you again, Congressman Larson. Great to be on. Good to see you again, Kaiser. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of The Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at seneca at com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter, or it's not called X or something. Um, uh, or on Facebook or on any of the other damn socials at at the China Project. and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.